Summer's almost over, but if you're taking one last trip, first of all, good for you. And second of all, make sure you bring along the NPR One app so you can follow NPR politics and all our reporting after you're all caught up on the podcast. Plus, you get hand-curated stories from your local station and other great podcasts. Get NPR One, O-N-E, on the App Store now. Okay, here's the show. It's the NPR Politics Podcast here with our roundup of the week's political news. Donald Trump continues to shift in tone. Is it too late to make a difference? While Hillary Clinton tries to shift the conversation to Trump and the alt-right. What's that? We'll explain it. Plus some listener mail and what we just can't let go this week. I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. I'm Mara Liason, national political correspondent. And I'm Ron Elving. Editor correspondent. It says Evling in the script. It though. does. Who it are says you? Evling, and I almost read it that way. <laughs> He'll read anything that's on the script. <laughs> You're like Ron Burgundy. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm like Donald Trump. They gave me a script and told me to stick to it. Speaking of Trump's script, uh, so Sam is off. Tam is somewhere in between here and Nevada. More on what she's doing in Nevada in a little bit. We're going to start with Donald Trump. Very surprising, isn't it, Domenico? That we're starting with Donald Trump. <laughs> it's a first. <laughs> Well, it's been an interesting week to watch the Trump campaign, and it's not because of what he's doing. It's about what he's not doing. He's not attacking people who aren't named Hillary Clinton. He's not picking fights with other Republicans. What he is doing is reading a script, sticking to that script, delivering a focused message, even developing something like a stump speech that he repeats from place to place. But that script is interesting in itself. And I want to start by talking about that. He's been speaking a lot about minority voters, reaching out to them in not the typical way you hear people reach out to to minority voters. Let's take a listen to what he said last week at a rally in Michigan just outside Lansing. What do you have to lose by trying something new like Trump? What do you have to lose? I say it again. What do you have to lose? Look, what do you have to lose? You're living in poverty. Your schools are no good. You have no jobs. 58% of your youth is unemployed. What the hell do you have to lose? And it's been one version or another of this for for about two weeks now. Sometimes it's it's a conciliatory tone saying, I really look forward to working with the African-American community. Sometimes he's saying, when I'm president, you won't get shot in the street, which is what he said yesterday. Uh... Mara, is this Donald Trump trying to make inroads with black voters, or is this that a lot of people have suggested Donald Trump actually talking to, you know, suburban white Republican voters and and trying to make them more okay with his candidacy? I think it's probably both. I mean, usually when Republican presidential candidates go to the inner city, make a speech about minorities, they're trying to communicate to suburban voters, particularly women, that they're not racist, they're not uh, divisive. And Donald Trump, of course, has dug himself a big hole on that. So I think a lot of it is trying to reach out beyond his base. But he certainly is talking to black voters in the same terms that he's talking to everyone else. Don't forget, this is the guy who authored a book called Crippled America. Things are terrible. You can't go down the street without getting shot. Whether this will help him reach out to black voters, help him get some suburban women, we don't know yet. I would say that this is not so much reaching out to African-American voters as reaching out at African-American voters. He's, he's, he's got a gesture here, but it isn't an open hand asking for their support so much as it's a gesturing hand that says, look at these people. 
Look at these people. Look at the condition of their community. Look at how bad things are for them. You know, they might as well come over to me. That's not the way you talk to somebody you want to appeal to. It's the way you talk about a group of people when you're actually directing your remarks to someone else. And I think that's actually really key because, frankly, when I looked at the numbers, I was really surprised about this. Donald Trump has a bigger problem with white people than he does with minority groups. And the reason I talk about this is not that minority groups like Donald Trump. It's because those minority groups are basically going for Hillary Clinton in margins that Barack Obama won. Now, that's a problem for a Republican candidate. But when you look at white voters, okay, this is supposed to be the group of people that Donald Trump can turn the crank on and like really get them out. You know, Mitt Romney won white men 62 to 37. That is a huge number. And when this whole thing started, I looked at that number and I said, how is he going to crank that up even higher than that? And right now, all those new voters he talked about bringing in, not only is that not happening, you're not seeing the margin compare. White women, you know, Mitt Romney won white women in 2012 by 14 points. In the latest NBC Wall Street Journal poll, Donald Trump is losing white women by one point overall. And it's an even bigger spread with white college-educated women. Every Republican is looking at this and saying, this is a major, major problem. And Kellyanne Conway, who is now the campaign manager for the Donald Trump campaign, who's very familiar with these numbers. She's a veteran Republican pollster. And that's a big reason why you're seeing this outreach now happen. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what what Domenico just laid out is exactly Donald Trump's problem. He is underperforming with the people who are supposed to be his base. It's as simple as that. And let's remember, Mitt Romney lost in an electoral landslide. You know, I would just just add this this caveat to that. It's not his hard base that he's no, losing No, no, they're still with it's, him. It's the, it's the people who were added to his hard base after he became the Republican well, nominee. Well, the people he has to have as his base if exactly. he has any hope of winning. The Republicans who weren't with him in the primaries but came to him because he became the nominee. Well, Talking about that uh, that tension between his his hard base, the people who are there from day one, and people who just typically vote for Republican voters, um, he's been talking to that second group, the uh, the people who are a bit more on the fence, a lot more about immigration than than his hardline supporters all along, and that has resulted in a really big shift on a big issue in the topic of immigration. Now, immigration has been a major theme for Donald Trump all along. We remember. On that famous escalator day about a year and a few months ago when, when he, he talked about... Can, when he announced his candidacy. Yeah, talking about the problem of people coming o- across the border uh, illegally with that famous line about, you know, they're rapists and things like that. Um, sounding very different lately. Let's take a listen to a couple clips and try and hash this out. Uh, this first one is from Fox News on Monday. What people don't know is that Obama got tremendous numbers of people out of the country. Bush, the same thing. Lots of people were brought out of the country with the existing laws. Well, I'm going to do the same thing, and I just said that. Okay, but, but here's what everybody wants to know. We want to do this it in a very thing. humane... Okay. We want to do it in a very humane manner. And then a little later in that interview. We're going to go through the process like they are now, perhaps with a lot more energy, and we're going to do it only through the system of laws. Okay. Good. Now, I want to play you... And by the way, Bill, that are in existence. This is a guy who has built his campaign saying the United States is not dealing with immigrants in the country illegally at all, that the current system is terrible, that he needs to overhaul it, build a wall on the border, 
What is going on here? We did not ever hear Donald Trump through the primary say what we need to do is what Barack Obama is doing today, only in a more humane fashion. <laughs> right, about anything, let alone his key issue. Let alone his key issue. So this morning, after all of these shifts on the part of Donald Trump, we got a statement from Ted Cruz, the last of his rivals to give up in the primaries. And Ted Cruz said, and now we see why we always knew everything Donald Trump says comes with an expiration date. He can change his tune even about the biggest issue for the people who voted most for him. And Domenico, can you walk us through what specifically Donald Trump is appearing to change his mind on here within the the immigration conversation? Well, what's really amazing about this, okay, he had started in the primary talking about how there had to be a deportation force. You know, he went on Morning Joe, uh, the MSNBC show back in November. and This is for the people already in the country. Right. And said that there that there would have to be a deportation force to get people out. How are you going to have a massive deportation force? You're going to have a deportation force, and you're going to do it humanely, and you're going to bring the country. And frankly, the, the people, because you have some excellent, wonderful people. So you know, and then so not only that, he went on Meet the Press on uh, NBC with Chuck Todd, where he's asked about whether he would rescind an executive order that President Obama signed that would uh, protect children of immigrants in the U.S. illegally. One good thing You'll about... You'll rescind the Dream Act executive you're order have to, DACA. We have to make a whole new set of standards. And when people come in, they have so to come in... you're going to split up they, families. Chuck, you're going to deport children. Chuck, no, no. We're going to keep the families together. We have to keep the families together. But you're going to keep but them they together have to go. But they have to go. What if they have no place to go? We will work with them. They have to go. So this is a very hard-line position they have to go. That, uh, that people have raised humanitarian questions about, that people have raised logistical questions about. How do you find millions of people and deport them? But now he seems to be changing his mind. Uh, so this is back on Fox News. This is a forum that he taped with Sean Hannity and has aired over the course of several nights this week. Uh, let's take a listen because this was an interesting moment where Trump started to almost like test out his new policy and ask the audience to weigh in as he explained what he, he might want to do. So do we tell these people to get out, number one, or do we work with them and let them stay in some form? Okay, are you ready? I'm just curious because it's a very interesting situation. No, wait, wait. So the bad ones, the gang members, all them, what do you think? Does anybody disagree on the gang members? Is there one person? Yeah, there's a gang member over there. <laughs> well, so that's, that's, that's clearly a shift where you see Donald Trump trying to almost get the audience on his side because he likes to work a room and say, you know, uh, this is, look, my supporters are behind this. He's telling them in a way what to think. No one's against, you know, deporting gang members, right? Barack Obama's not against deporting gang members. So he's polling the audience there, and then he says this. Who wants those people thrown out? I get that. I mean, I really get that. And we do have a thing called jobs. You know, from the economy standpoint, we can't get jobs for our own people, and we're supplying jobs. But everywhere I go, I get the same reaction. They want toughness. They want firmness. They want to obey the law. But but they feel that throwing them out as a whole family when they've been here for a long time, it's a tough thing. They do feel that. Here's, let me get... Mara, you have been yelling about this moment in the newsroom today. What is going through your head as you try to process this? Well, it's a complete total 180 
because he is now saying, and he said in other interviews, that he would be open to legalizing people who are here illegally, not giving them citizenship, but legalizing them. That is no different from the thing that John Boehner floated and the Republican Party rejected. It's something that President Obama even said he'd be open to as a compromise for uh, immigration reform. But the experiment is, can he soften his stand on immigration thereby reaching out to many moderate voters who've been turned off by his views on Hispanics without losing his core supporters. He said famously, I could stand on Fifth Avenue, shoot someone, and I wouldn't lose any voters. Now we're going to have the test of that. In other words, can he do something that's so different than his absolute core issue and not lose any of them while gaining a certain amount of moderate voters or not? Especially, Ron, when you've run your entire campaign as being the truth teller who's never going to compromise. Donald Trump never said he would stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and legalize any people who were here illegally. <laughs> he was just going to shoot someone. <laughs> That's correct. And so uh, this is something that does seem to go so much to the heart of the appeal of the Trump campaign in its first six, eight, nine, ten months that it is extremely difficult to imagine. Imagine that this does not become the focal point of everything he says going forward, especially because at the same time that he's pivoting to do these Kellyanne Conway kind of things that we all sort of attribute to her and assume that she has urged upon him, he still has Steve Bannon as his new campaign boss, the man who runs Breitbart.com, the man who calls that the voice of the alt-right. And that's a really different approach to getting elected in November from the one Kellyanne Conway has been urging on him. I find the softening tone like really fascinating because early on in the campaign, you know, you remember the debates when, when you know, Donald Trump filleted Jeb Bush when it came to the uh, term act of love. Remember that? Mm -hmm. He said, you said that people are coming here through an act of love, like give me a break, right? You know, and yeah, so, what a wimp. Yeah. Now they're looking at the numbers. You know, it's hard not to see any other reason for this changed approach other than the fact that political gravity is actually setting in and that he realizes, you know, with the advice of his pollster saying that this is something you need to do. It's something the Republican Party has been all over since Mitt Romney lost in 2012. And the fact that the primary continues to pull Republicans in the other direction makes it continuously problematic for them in the general election. And I think we should just say, as we have this conversation, we are talking about this in naked, slightly cynical political terms, because after all, we are a political podcast. But, you know, on this issue especially, this is an issue that is very personal, that affects people's lives. If you're somebody who's in the country illegally, this is almost a life or death issue. And at the same time, if you are a base Republican voter who has been actively supporting Donald Trump from day one, this is an issue that infuriates you, that you take really personally, that you're very serious about. And this is not softening the tone. This is changing policy. He's not talking about immigration in a different way. He used to say he wanted to deport 11 million illegal immigrants and he was going to have a deportation force. Now he's talking about possibly doing something legalization short of citizenship. That is a complete change of policy. It's not just tone. All right. So we're going to take a quick break right there. Um, before we do, uh, actually, there's a there's two different stories that our, our colleagues have done this week that I think are really relevant to the conversation that we just had. If you want to look for them on NPR One and that Election Essentials app. Uh, one is uh, Sarah McCammon uh, was in Jackson, Mississippi this week where Donald Trump spoke uh, predominantly black community. Um, she went around and asked the question Trump had been asking, what do you have to lose to black voters that she found? And Asma Khalid has been doing a lot of reporting 
on the shift away from the Republican Party of college-educated voters. That's something Domenico was talking about. So those stories shed a lot of light on this. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about Hillary Clinton's week. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Blue Apron, who knows that incredible ingredients make incredible meals. Blue Apron works with a community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, sustainable fisheries, and ethical ranchers to deliver perfectly portioned seasonal ingredients and easy-to-follow recipe cards right to your door. Choose recipes based on your preferences with no weekly commitment. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free, plus free shipping, by visiting blueapron.com slash nprpolitics. Hey there. Before we get back to the show with the Olympics in Rio behind us, Latino USA is taking a look at the more than 300,000 Brazilian Americans who live in the U.S. For many of them, it's unclear where they fit in the American tapestry. And Latino USA is asking, are Brazilians Latinos? Hear the show at npr.org slash podcasts or on the NPR One app. Okay, back to the show. Okay, it's Thursday, and this afternoon, Hillary Clinton is in Nevada giving a speech her campaign says will be all about the alt-right. This is a term you might not have heard that much about before, but if you follow politics, suddenly it's all over your Twitter feed. It's all over cable news. Uh, Domenico, can you bring us up to speed on what the alt-right is? I don't think so, but I'll do my (laughs) best. Um, You know, this is basically short for the alternative right. So on the spectrum of political ideology, they're more conservative all the way to the right wing of conservatism. And but it's really a loosely affiliated group of folks. This is online. And, you know, they range from everything from people who are against political correctness to folks who are hardcore neo-Nazis. And you see a lot of racism and a lot of racist discussion that goes on through some of this. And this is some of what Hillary Clinton is trying to tie to Donald Trump because a lot of the folks who subscribe to the alt-right movement are also supporters of Donald Trump's. Right. Like like a lot of online movements, it's hard to specifically define. It's hard to categorize. But I think one big theme is kind of a white nationalism, kind of a hardline anti-immigration stance. Anti-establishment. Anti-globalism. And a real disdain for the establishment Republican Party. And, you know, Breitbart, which is the website uh, that Steve Bannon, the new CEO of the Trump campaign, runs, has described itself as the voice of the alt-right. But to me... The alt-right is a younger, hipper, slightly more sophisticated version of anti-Semitism and white supremacism. I mean, they also think that every norm and tradition is just stupid. And whatever they can do to to make people overthink what they're doing (laughs) makes them laugh. And they think that if you're not – if you're not – if you don't think it's funny, then – Jokes on you, right? There's a lot of memes that are that are very racist, but in uh, a lot of people will defend it, saying they're they're doing that in kind of an ironic, sarcastic tone. Most people don't find racism that ironic or funny. I mean, um, you know, yeah, but you know what? It's not what you say; it's what people hear. Right. And uh, Mara, you said that 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 Breitbart has kind of carried the banner for for the alt right movement under Steve Bannon. Uh, he, of course, is now a big part of the Trump campaign, and that's something that Democrats are seizing on. That's a lot of what Hillary Clinton's uh, speech is about. So first, let's just listen to a recent DNC ad that that seized on some particularly provocative headlines from the site. And this was just people literally reading Breitbart headlines. Would you rather your child had feminism or cancer? Global warming extremists control the Vatican. Gabby Giffords, the gun control movement's human shield. Bill Kristol, Republican spoiler, renegade Jew. 
solution to online harassment is simple. Women should log off. All hail King Barack Obama, Emperor of the United States of America. And Trump. it goes on. And we just say that Breitbart's own editor-in-chief, Alex Marlowe, said on Breitbart in a post about this ad, this is a quote, typical Democrats, they were too lazy to find our inflammatory headlines. <laughs> So there you go. And, you know, they, they Hillary Clinton said today that the merger between Breitbart and the Trump campaign, she said, represents a landmark achievement for the alt-right. She said it's a fringe element that has effectively taken over the Republican Party. So no one should have any illusions about what's really going on here. The names may have changed. Racists now call themselves racialists. White supremacists now call themselves white nationalists. The paranoid fringe now calls itself alt-right, but the hate burns just as bright. And now Trump is trying to rebrand himself as well. But don't be fooled. There's an old Mexican proverb that says, tell me with whom you walk, and I will tell you who you are. Well, we know who Trump is. A few words on a teleprompter won't change that. He says he wants to make America great again, but more and more it seems as though his real message seems to be make America hate again. Strong language and obviously trying to tie Donald Trump to, uh, you know, some of what we were talking about earlier when Donald Trump's trying to make this outreach to minority communities, trying to completely cancel that out. And, and even not only to minority communities, but because so many of these white suburban voters really don't want to be associated with somebody who's being labeled a bigot or a racist, the, tr the, the Clinton campaign is trying to tie Donald Trump exactly to that. Though, isn't it interesting that in the couple weeks since Steve Bannon of Breitbart has joined the campaign, we have not seen the shift to alt-right world like people thought, but in the exact opposite direction. He didn't need to shift to alt-right world. He had those people already. I think what you're seeing that's so interesting when people say, whoa, Steve Bannon's pointing in one direction. Kellyanne Conway seems to be leading him in another. I think there are two things going on. Donald Trump is running a presidential campaign, and yes, he wants to win. As he says, he's all about winning, and that's where Kellyanne Conway come in. But when you think about what he's going to do in the future, maybe he wants to be the premier American voice of anti-globalization, start a media company with Steve Bannon, have his own cable network, whatever. Steve Bannon could be the future and Kellyanne Conway could be the present. That, that, that would then suggest that you might see Donald Trump appear with, say, Nigel Farage, the head of the Brexit <laughs> uh, movement which in he, Great yes, Britain. Yes, oh, which he, oh that. that's right. I only detected that this week in yeah. Mississippi. <laughs> I was going to say, I only detect a, a hint of sarcasm there, Ron. That's all caps. Okay. S-A-R, all caps. <laughs> So uh, so this is something that, that is fodder for the Clinton campaign. She's giving this speech. Kellyanne Conway was actually asked about this on CBS this morning. And even though Steve Bannon of Breitbart is the CEO of the campaign, uh, she put a lot of distance between that world and the world of the Donald Trump campaign. How would you describe the alt-right movement? I am not that familiar with it, to be frank with you. I, I, I've read about it, but I think that we also are cherry-picking headlines from a website, and is Hillary Clinton running against a website, or even well, would you, you know, say it's people... would, you, would you say the Trump campaign is a platform for the alt right movement? No, not at all. We've never even discussed it internally. It certainly isn't part of our strategy meetings. It's nothing that Mr. Trump says out on the stump. So, in other words, nothing to see here. 
Move on. Hillary Clinton wants voters to see a lot here. As she said today in her speech, from the start, Donald Trump has built his campaign on prejudice and paranoia. He's taking hate groups mainstream and helping a radical fringe take over one of America's two major political parties. Next time you see Trump on TV, think about all the children listening across America. You know, kids hear a lot more than we think. Parents and teachers are already worrying about what they call the Trump effect. They report that bullying and harassment are on the rise in our schools, especially targeting students of color, Muslims, and immigrants. At a recent high school basketball game in Indiana, white students held up Trump signs and taunted Latino players on the opposing team with chants of build the wall and speak English. After a similar incident in Iowa, one frustrated school principal said, They see it in a presidential campaign, and now it's okay for everyone to say this. How does Donald Trump respond to uh, Hillary Clinton basically calling him a racist? He says, talk to Kellyanne. She'll tell you I'm I'm not. Or he turns back and says, what about that Clinton Foundation? And, And I think it's a lot more of what we've been hearing from the last few weeks, that Democrats have not been good to inner cities. Uh, That's kind of what Trump has said over and over again, as we talked about. But speaking of the Clinton Foundation, Domenico... While Clinton would prefer to talk about the alt-right all week, there are a couple stories this week she would very much not like to talk about, and those have to do with the Clinton Foundation. Uh, This has been an ongoing critique of her since before she entered the presidential campaign. This really picked up in earnest uh, a couple weeks ago with the release of several new emails that showed conversations between Clinton Foundation staffers and State Department aides where the Foundation staffers were asking for favors, for meetings, for people who would happen to give a lot of money to the Clinton Foundation. Uh, There was also a story that the Associated Press published that made a lot of headlines saying that more than half of her meetings with private citizens as Secretary of State were with people who also donated to the Clinton Foundation. Now, there was a lot of pushback on that story. The campaign immediately pointed out the AP had decided not to count about 1,700 meetings that she had had with U.S. government officials and with government officials from around the world, which is something you do a lot as Secretary of State. Uh, but still, the, the critique is there. It's something that the Trump campaign has really focused like a laser on. Yeah, they, they, they're charging that they were selling access, essentially, yeah. um, that there was some quid pro quo. Now, quid pro quos are very difficult to prove. Uh, so it's, there's nothing so far that we've seen that you can definitively say this definitely happened because of a donation. Now, you know, there's been plenty of reporting on uh, some aspects of this that make it appear in some fashion that it seems shady or seems seedy, that there was some special access granted for donors, certainly, uh, is the way it looks. But, you know, the, 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 the bottom line about corruption is did Hillary Clinton meet with someone who she wouldn't have met with or any U.S. Secretary of State wouldn't have met with unless they'd given the donation? Or did she do a favor for someone that was contrary to American foreign policy? That is what hasn't been proven yet. But the bottom line is, this is why she has such 
bad numbers on honesty and trustworthiness. And I mean, we should say the Clinton Foundation does good work. I mean, has done good, good works, work, right? You, I mean, you bought into that, have you? You <laughs> think that it's you think that it's all just well, a global, generous. That, that sets me Elon up. Masonary that sets me up for my next point. Maybe it's only be uh, become this uh, negative, bad place in the last few years. Maybe that's what's happened because 42 days before the 2012 election, do you know who spoke at the Clinton Global Initiative? Mitt Romney. And he happened to say very nice things about Bill Clinton and how he's somebody that you want to have on your side for these kinds of issues. You know, so, I mean, you know, Republicans liked the Clinton Foundation quite a bit before it became part of Hillary Clinton's run for the presidency. But we should say that while the foundation very well has been, may very well have been uh, admired by some Republicans, and while it has surely done some good works around the world, it also was created to and serves the purpose of keeping alive the Clinton enterprise Mm -hmm. writ large. And Bill Clinton's legacy. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist or someone who hates everything the Clintons touch, to say, you know, this had aspects to it that looked like the permanent campaign, the sort of shadow government of the Clintons in the years they were out of power. And you know what? Sorry. And if they are making all these big changes in the foundation going forward, if she becomes president, why why didn't they do it once she became secretary of state? And And I think this is slamming the barn door after the horse has been stolen, if there's a horse and if it was stolen. Well, Clinton uh, was asked about that, uh, that very issue when she was on CNN last night. Let's take a listen to what she had to say. Why was it okay for the Clinton Foundation to accept foreign donations when you were Secretary of State, but it wouldn't be okay if you were President? Well, what we did when I was Secretary of State, as I said, went above and beyond anything that was required, anything that any charitable organization has to do. Now, obviously, um, if I am President, there will be Uh, some unique uh, circumstances, and that's why the foundation has laid out additional... But but didn't those unique circumstances exist when you were Secretary of State? If I am elected. Didn't those unique circumstances exist? No, no. You know, look, Anderson, I I know there's a lot of smoke, uh, and there's no fire with world leaders, plus countless other meetings with U.S. government officials uh, when I was Secretary of State, it looked at a... You know, there's a couple points here. I mean, on the disclosure end of this, the the reason why Hillary Clinton might sound as frustrated as she does in about, oh, we went beyond and above and beyond the legal, what was required legally, it's because the Obama transition team said that if you're going to have the Clinton Foundation, then you've got to spin it off into a couple different parts. You've got to have disclosure. So now that disclosure, so the, the idea that we can go and see all of their donors, that's not usual for all charities. Yeah. You can't go to a charity's website and say, oh, let's look at uh, everyone who's given to you from a million to five million or 100,000 to 250,000. That's what the Clinton Foundation does because the Obama administration asked them to do so and they're being hung (laughs) by the database that they've given everybody to be able to look and cross-check what all those conflicts are. Now, there is a bigger point here and I'm going to lower my favorability ratings on this podcast right now. It's because I apparently want my my ratings to just completely tank with our listeners. Do we have ratings? You should go rate us on iTunes. Is that but, like those little lights like, over can there? Can you rate Domenico on iTunes? Oh, he Metaphor. Point. Thank point. you. The point I'd like to make here is that this is politics. It looks gross, but show me, show me the member of Congress who doesn't grant a meeting to his biggest benefactor or donor 
over the average person. And I will challenge listeners here who decide that they want to go run for office, that they're not going to the first thing they need to do, go find a big donor or benefactor to be able to help them run and help them win. There would be no Barack Obama, by the way, without Penny Pritzker, who is the heiress to Hyatt. Without her, then you, he doesn't have the funding to run for the Senate. And without that, you know, she what does she wind up with? She winds up with a job in the Obama administration. It sounds gross. It is gross. But that's the way the world works. You know, I think one or two presidential candidates this year might have uh, might have focused on the theme of not really loving that system. <laughs> no kidding. Bernie Sanders. Remember him. Uh, so actually, there is some Bernie Sanders news this week, and it kind of is in this general area. He started a new political group, and the start was... A little bit rocky. So what happened was Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, is is trying to continue his legacy with a group called Our Revolution. And Our Revolution kicked off but in a very bumpy way because the person running the group is Jeff Weaver, who people might remember was his campaign manager, somebody who's been with Bernie Sanders on and off for 30 years politically. But there was half of the staff of Our Revolution walked out on Jeff Weaver. Now, why would they do this? Their big thing that they were upset about was the legal structure that Jeff Weaver set up would bring in anonymous big money and he wanted to run TV ads. They wanted to run active, more activist campaigns and be able to support down-ballot candidates. When you set yourself up as what's known as a 501c4, which is the IRS code for this group, you can't actually do a lot of political work. You're a social welfare group. So it limits how much political work you can do. And these staffers were really annoyed by it. There was also the assurance that they had been given uh, when they signed on to do our revolution that Jeff Weaver was not going to be part of it. They knew what Jeff Weaver would want to do. They didn't want to be part of that. Bernie Sanders assured them that he would not be part of it. And then, of course, when they showed up for work, here comes Jeff Weaver. So they walked out. Apparently, Senator Sanders tried to persuade them to come back. They said, no, look, we said we don't want to work for Jeff Weaver. We don't want to do that kind of stuff. So They're upset because uh, Jeff Weaver ran Bernie Sanders' campaign, and they also blamed him for uh, you know, stra- strategy misfires. All right. And that covers that. Um, let's move on to some listener mail. A reminder, you can write us with your questions. You can even record your questions. I think we were asking people to sing their questions, but it's, we seem to not be asking that anymore. So if you're a good singer, sing your questions. Uh, you can send them to nprpolitics at npr.org. We read all of it. And keep them coming because we might do a podcast soon that's all listener mail questions. So here's a question we got this week from Pennsylvania. Hi, this is Charlie McGee, and I'm a high school teacher from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. As we're planning for our school year, we're thinking about how we're going to approach the election with our students. And I was just wondering, if y'all were in a classroom this fall, what would you be interested in exploring with young people about the 2016 election? As we all turn to Ron Elton. This is what I spend my nights trying to figure out because I'm going to be doing it. Um, <laughs> so you don't want to give away your syllabus? Yeah, really. Is that no, what's I, happening my here? syllabus, God. <laughs> um, Think of a project that your students can do where they simulate actually having a campaign, either for one of the presidential Mm. candidates or for some other office or possibly for an office right there in your school for perhaps, you know, class president or something like that. But have them think in terms of what campaigns and candidates really have to do, not just about the big issues of constitutional rights and access to the ballot and, you know, red states and blue states. All that stuff's fine. It's great. But get them involved. You mean they should fill out who their big donor is going to be? (laughs) <laughs> Mom, could I have $5 to run for class president? 
Yep. Anybody else have any thoughts on this? Oh, boy. They should understand what things really mean. If they're going to be discussing trade, what is a free trade deal? It's kind of like after the two months here, Mara. That's okay. But they could pick one or two things. It's kind of like after the Brexit vote in England, the most Googled term was what is the EU? Before you vote, maybe you should know what you're voting on and maybe they could look into immigration, how the laws really work or something. Just take anything that's being debated and actually try to understand it. So if they can do that, they can come back and help run our country. So sticking with this theme, very similar question here. Maybe it's because school is starting up right around now. We got this question via email from Sophia who wrote, Hey guys, hey, I'm a junior at a high school in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and over the last year I've become completely fascinated with U.S. politics and the election. I'm fairly certain that I want to pursue studying government and politics in college and hopefully something in that realm as a career. The only problem, I have no idea what I should look for in a college major. What are good college majors for someone interested in politics, any aspect of it, and what kind of jobs and careers can be associated with them? May I recommend American history? Uh, It worked pretty good for me, and it teaches you a lot about what happened. And in terms of what kinds of jobs and careers, why, we might also recommend journalism. (laughs) We might. We uh, might. We might, but we We might might not. We might. Uh, uh, I would endorse the history as the first choice, but there is political science, and that is a somewhat more scientific way of approaching understanding all of these issues. I had a I had a, a teacher in grad school say because I I started as a finance major and then I I went to English and then became and went into to journalism and politics but I had her say once you know well it's good to mention if you've majored in something interesting you know like economics I said well you know I majored in finance she said I said something interesting <laughs> <laughs> well I was, I was going to say we probably have three English degrees here on the panel yep. but but if you want to major in economics that's a good way to prepare for doing something else. I also think, you know, look (laughs) at what do you want to be? Like, what do you want to do with politics? Like, you know, if you really know you want to be a reporter or be a journalist, then you really should do something that's going to refine your writing. If you're going to do something that's going to be more strategic, you want to be an operative or something, there are courses you can take in political management, for example. Um, One more question. This is from New York City. Hi, NPR politics team. My name is Nat, and I'm walking with my dog, Harry, in beautiful Prospect Park in Brooklyn, New York. And we had a question about voter turnout and the down-ballot elections. As I understand it, high voter turnout typically means better results for Democrats. If this election turns into a blowout for Hillary Clinton, what does that mean for House and Senate elections? All right, thanks a lot for your answers. Come on, Harry. Let's go. Good boy. Harry's a good dog name. So here's a big macro answer. In the presidential years, the electorate grows by about 50%. That's how many more people vote than vote in the midterm elections when it's just Congress and governors on the ballot and no president. That has been very, very good to the Democrats starting in 1992. They have done very, very well in terms especially of the popular vote and in terms of Congress, generally speaking, in presidential years and poorly in the midterm years, including really poorly like in 2014 and 2010 and 1994. So a bigger bigger electorate generally has been good news for the Democrats. That's what they're counting on this fall. If it's a blowout, the Senate is gone. Republicans won't be able to hold it. I mean, operatives on both sides contend that. You know, because of how the House is drawn, Democrats are not expected to pick up the House and maybe uh, pick up a, a dozen or more seats. But some are, are actually starting to talk about that if it's a huge blowout, uh, that it could start to put the House in play. Uh, Nat, 
what kind of dog is Harry? Please follow up and let us know. I'm very curious. He sounds a lot like a cricket. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that is a wrap on the mail. We're going to end with Can't Let It Go when we all share something we just can't stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise. Mara, would you like to start us off? Yes. What I Can't Let Go is a moment on C-SPAN where a caller named Gary called in and said that he, he was prejudiced. I was hoping that your guest can help me change my mind about some things. Um, I'm a white male, and I am prejudiced. And the reason it is is something I wasn't taught, but it's kind of something that I learned. Um, when I open up the papers, I get very discouraged at what young black males are doing to each other. And he asked for the, some the pointers from a woman named Heather McGee, who's the head of a public policy organization called Demos. What can I do to change, you know, to be a better American? Heather McKee. Thank you so much for being honest um, and for opening up this conversation because it's simply one of the most important ones we have to have in this country. Yeah, Heather McGee, this is really worth watching. Um, She first, as you heard, you know, thanked him for for asking the question and for thinking about this. And she gave him some specific advice, like, go search out some black families who aren't like the ones you see on TV. Because we know that actually uh, nightly news and many media markets that have been studied actually over-represents African-American crime and under-represents crimes that happen uh, by by white people. Uh, Join a church if you are a religious person that is uh, a black church or a church that is uh, interracial. Um, Start to read about the history of uh, of the African-American community in this country. Um, Foster conversation in your family and in your neighborhood where you're asking exactly those kinds of questions. And uh, she gave him a lot of specific points, and it was just a wonderful exchange, I thought. A A real tonic and departure from a lot of the tone of this year's election. All right, Ron. Actually, this week, Scott, I would like to let go of something. Uh, what I what I really <laughs> wouldn't... <laughs> wait, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> That's not how this is supposed to work. But he just can't. That's the whole point. I, no, the point is that I can't and I must, I just must, I really want to let go of this thing. And it is the practice of presidential candidates, particularly at fundraisers, taking selfies with lots of famous people, uh. including Hollywood actors and actresses, and all of them leering into the camera. I just can't take any more of those pictures. You're done with it. I'm, I'm ready to let it go. Was there a particular one this week that really irked you? This would be Hillary Clinton and just about everybody she had a picture taken with over the weekend. I saw like a photo booth of her and Justin Timberlake. That was pretty obnoxious. Uh, Jennifer Justin Aniston. Timberlake. You know, you, you know, not, See, now we're, we're just okay, doing nothing, it right now. I, I don't think we should, I really don't think we should pick out any one particular movie star. I think we should just call it a class. Is it just the celebrity on celebrity thing that irritates you? I, I, or think, it's, it... I think it's the celebrity on celebrity on fundraising on candidate. But you're not totally anti-selfie because I'll say when we take the politics podcast on the road, lots of people like to take selfies with Mr. Ron Elving. Yeah, but that's, there's no celebrity involved there, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, I'm going to take this outside the world of politics because um, we talked a lot about politics today. Um, so we were having this kind of... Uh, all staff meeting with the politics desk a couple days ago. And Tamara Keith, who's usually my ally in these types of things, uh, was made some sort of off comment. We were talking about conspiracies and she said, yeah, people believe in anything. People believe in aliens. And I was like, well, of course there are aliens. There are billions of stars and billions of planets. There have to be other things out there. And I just kind of got some blank stares on that. 
But a couple hours later, news emerged that there is a potentially habitable new planet on, guess what, the closest star to our solar system. Proxima Centauri, only 4.25 light years away. There you go. Practically on our property. Yeah. Have you you seen a UFO? No, I'm just saying that somewhere. I don't know if they've necessarily come here, but it's like to be somewhere. No, I I saw one. I saw one at Dennis Kucinich's house once. But I, I, I hear what you're saying. There's a lot of stars, and we're far away from everybody. Yeah, yeah, getting a little further. I don't think there's (laughs) an. I don't think there's a name for this new planet. Um, Actually, you're calling it Proxima Centauri B. Okay. Oh, can we lie? I thought that was the name of the star. No, no, Proxima Centauri is the star. And uh. Proxima B is the planet. You mock me, yet you know facts about the new planet. I'm not. I'm not mocking you. <laughs> I mean, I, I saw one over at Dennis Kucinich's house. B He's got a model of it. B doesn't sound like a good uh, name for a planet, though. It sounds no. like the second side of an album. I mean, we need to lobby NASA to make this the Detro. I'll, I'll take Detro. that. But how about this? If you, if Detro. you have a <laughs> Detro Rising. Oh. All right. So I was going to say, if you have <laughs> any better suggestions for this planet, you can write or tweet at us. But instead, how about you just lobby NASA for them to name the planet that? I think that's that's the good use of mm-hmm. our crowdsourcing there. Back on this planet, Domenico, yeah. I assume your can't let it go is on Earth? My can't let it go is on Earth. But if you were an alien who came down from another planet and saw this, you might think, what the what is happening right now? Because it was an amazing moment where we suddenly turned on Facebook and I'm looking through, you know, what's happening and just, you know, going along. And all of a sudden I see floating before me, but Mike Pence in a barber chair getting his hair cut. Nothing that unusual about that. I'm, first thought is, why are they live streaming this? And then I see he's in a black barber shop. And I said, well, I wonder how this is going to go. <laughs> so we're watching it. And you get to the end of this. And this is Henry Jones's barbershop in Norristown, Pennsylvania. And Pence, you know, checks out the haircut with a mirror. They do the mirror um, thing. You they like do the, the mirror back. thing. He's Big looking mirror. around. Yeah, he's, you know, checking it out. He seems to like it. You know, he made a joke. He's like, you know, Pence has a lot of white hair. And he said, you know, you, I hope you got all the white ones, you know. He makes a, his dad joke, you know. And, and uh, he gets up. And he applauds. Perfect. He starts applauding. And the man says this. Your name are? Mike Pence. Mike Pence. Yes, sir. I'm the governor of the state of Indiana. So he didn't know who he was. He didn't know who he was. Pence has to say, I'm the governor of the state of Indiana, and I'm running for vice president of the United States. For vice president of the United States. Go ahead, man. Oh, Vice president? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh, boy. But then he tells him that he's running for vice president with Donald Trump. I'm running with Donald Trump, so I'm his running mate. Okay, all right. Just tapped me a month ago. (laughs) So there's that. And they were, you know, he was very gracious. They took picture together. Uh, it wasn't quite the celebrity selfie maybe he was hoping for, but they got they got their photo taken. And uh, he didn't really even seem to need a haircut going into it. No, it was like the exact same hair going out as going in. But yeah. you know, down goes another awkward moment in U.S. politics. Okay, that's it for this week. As always, you can catch more of our political coverage at nprpolitics.org. If you like the show, do us a big favor and leave a review on iTunes. You can also rate Domenico personally. That helps new listeners find us. And if you're caught up on the podcast for more of our daily political coverage, you can listen on your local NPR station or visit the Election Essentials section of the NPR One app. I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. I'm Mara Liason, national political correspondent. And I'm Ron Elving, editor, correspondent, journalist, emeritus. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Mm-hmm.